Good morning, Tim. I am wrestling and struggling with some unresolved emotions over my husband's affair, and I really like to see how I'm going to go forward because it seems like I'm a little stuck. Hello, I'm Tim Tedder, creator of AffairHealing.com. This is the second podcast in a two-part series in which Sharon and I discuss the trauma of betrayal. In the previous episode, we dealt with understanding trauma. And in this conversation, we're going to talk about recovering from the trauma. If you would like links to the resources mentioned in this podcast, along with downloadable instructions for the three exercises, go to affairhealing.com slash podcast 306. Welcome to The Recovery Room, a podcast presented by AffairHealing.com. Here are your hosts, Tim and Sharon Tedder. In our last podcast, we talked about the experience of betrayal and understanding what that's all about. Mm -hmm. And although we are specific to the trauma of betrayal, we dealt with it in a little bit more generic way. In fact, I even used the example of a woman who was injured by one of the bombs that went off in the Boston Marathon mm -hmm. and used that mm -hmm. as an example of someone whose life is changed unexpectedly in an instant. Mm -hmm. And yet how she moved through that to the changes that moved her towards growth renewal, hopefulness, and all of those things. Mm -hmm. But we also want to acknowledge that there are some things that are unique about the trauma of betrayal. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the first thing I think about is it is sort of an invisible trauma, just like with a lot of chronic diseases where they are like autoimmune diseases that you can't see on the outside. People kind of assume it's not as intense as you are complaining it is. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like there are certain kinds of traumas that are like physical traumas or something that you can actually like say this horrible thing and people can look at that and go, oh, yes, you know, you just came back from the war. Yes. And, and it's very visible and very, you know, real for people. With this kind of trauma, people take it in stride more. They don't really realize how much agony you're in on the inside. It's harder for people to see it. If people have never been through something like it, they blow it off a little bit, not always, but generally. And that can be very minimizing. It can make the person feel they are very alone, very judged. Well, not only is it internal and invisible, it tends to impact people at a soul deep level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it hits us at the core of who we are. Right. It breaks trust. Oh, yeah. And, and we talk about trust being the foundation of any secure, healthy, intimate relationship. People assume oftentimes that that's love that's yeah. the foundation of it. But, but we believe, no, it's trust. it's trust. You can fall in love with a lot of people in different ways and sure. so forth. And you can really love somebody and have no trust, and that's not a real relationship. <laughs> no, no. So. so so it, it, it breaks trust. I think of what Brene Brown speaks and writes about, and she states that at the core of who we are, there is that need and longing for intimate connection with others. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's true. Mm -hmm. So if that is true, then the betrayal by the person that promised 
to be true to us Mm -hmm. and love us faithfully Mm -hmm. causes injury to that core sense of belonging, that core sense of connection. It's a deep, deep wound. Well, you know, when I do EMDR with people, part of the EMDR process is not just the traumatic memory, but also the negative cognition you started to believe about yourself Mm -hmm. in that moment. So if we're talking about a negative cognition about, say, a a bad car accident, um, you know, being held up at gunpoint, something like that, the negative cognition will end up being something like, I am not safe, I am in danger, my life is threatened, things like that. When you're talking about a negative cognition dealing with a relationship betrayal, it is more like, I am nothing, I am worthless, I am not enough, I am not lovable. That is very different because it is a core thing that you feel your existence on the planet isn't enough. And for most betrayed partners, it's usually the quick conclusion they come to. It's not true. Mm-hmm. And not right. all of them come to it. But I'd say probably most of the betrayed partners deal significantly with that question. Yeah. Of what does this mean about me? About me. My value, my worthiness. Mm-hmm. And the conclusion of that question is a judgment about how they see themselves or how they assume other people see them mm-hmm. as well. Right. I think one other difference too is that it is an injury that many times is not just a single event that right. happens in a particular time and place. Mm-hmm. Now, some affairs can be, or the way mm-hmm. they're experienced. Right. But many times, even after disclosure or discovery, an affair can be ongoing. Oh, yeah. Or the telling the lies can be ongoing. Yep. And either way, that trauma just continues to impact and hurt and cause injury to the mm-hmm. one who's being betrayed. Mm-hmm. So not just being a one event that has to be recovered from, it's an ongoing injury that just mm-hmm. compounds the trauma that's being right. experienced. Sometimes for days, weeks, months, even years. Yeah, well, it's chronic traumatization. And it's a similar thing that happens when there's an abusive home for a child. That's what we deal with when we're dealing with that kind of trauma. It's chronic and that's the actual name for it. And that is what happens when an affair is either, let's say, trickle truth happens where the person finds out, but then there's all this other stuff that the person keeps saying, oh, I swear, you know everything now. And then boom, something else comes out. That is re-traumatizing because that person has settled into what they feel is a new level of trust, which is pretty low. Yeah. And then something else happens. It dives them even deeper and it just keeps happening over and over. Yeah. And I'm sure we've said it before, but it's worth Worth saying again, especially to betrayers, mm. to unfaithful partners, when your partner says to you, listen, just get it out of the way, rip the bandaid off, yeah, tell, me, tell me the truth. Yes. They what mean they are, it. <laughs> yes. They, they are saying, I know this is going to hurt, mm-hmm. but I need to get this out of the way if I'm ever going to trust you again, yeah. because this ongoing injury just compounds the problem. Oh, gosh. Yeah. There could be times where if that person had just told the truth, the relationship would have made it. If that person had not held anything back and had Mm -hmm. just put it all out there, that that would have been the new normal and the betrayed spouse could have moved forward from that point and there would be a possibility of reconciliation. But because they choose to 
withhold things and just let it seep out little by little and keep on punching that person in the emotional face. Yeah. And, and be very clear, we're not necessarily talking about you need to give exhaustive knowledge no. about the affair because that can be over-traumatizing. You no. don't need every detail, but you need the truth. No, they need, need to understand what was the beginning and the end. What was the extent? Who was it with? They need to understand those things that give a clear picture mm-hmm. of this is the betrayal mm-hmm. and this is the truth of it. Yeah. Let's talk about another important aspect of betrayal trauma, and that is the tendency sometimes for the injured partner to be Mm re-traumatized. That re-traumatizing can happen in two ways. It can be self-inflicted by the person that was betrayed, or it can be an ongoing affliction induced by the person that continues to betray or continues to lie. Now, that one's obvious. We've already talked about that. Mm -hmm. Being in a situation where you're with a partner, you find out about an affair, and either you find out that that behavior continues or the lying about the behavior Mm -hmm. continues. Either way, Mm -hmm. it's an ongoing traumatizing. And we would say if you have been betrayed and you're in a relationship where that is continuing to happen, Mm -hmm. you need to distance yourself from that Mm -hmm. relationship. There need to be boundaries in place. Separation needs to happen, at least emotional separation, probably physical separation. And in many cases, it may be the end of that relationship. If it's a marriage, possibly divorce. Mm -hmm. We don't tell people that's what you need to do, but we are pretty strong in saying you need to separate yourself. From yeah, that. you need to be safe, healthy boundaries. You've got to put up a boundary so that you allow that person to actually have that distance space quiet to actually start to be introspective about what they're doing. Mm. And if they can't, if you give them that opportunity and they literally cannot go there mm. <laughs> or will not go there, that's where you have to make a hard decision about what your future is going to look like. And if the healthiest choice for you would be to move away permanently. So let's talk about the other kind of re-traumatizing, the kind that's self-inflicted, that the one who is injured, betrayed, continues to make choices that takes them back into the trauma or deepens the trauma over and over again. Just imagine if you were counseling someone who had experienced a different kind of trauma. Let's say they experienced a severe physical assault. Okay. Yeah, they were mugged or something. Or yeah, beat they were out somewhere one night and turn around a corner and someone was there mm-hmm. and they experienced a violent physical assault that mm-hmm. caused injury to them. Mm-hmm. And they're having a hard time after that recovering, mm-hmm. feeling safe, maybe not even wanting to go out of their home, doing mm-hmm. all that sort of thing. So they come to you. I need help in dealing with mm-hmm. this trauma. Can you imagine finding out that there's some cameras out on the street mm-hmm. recording that event mm-hmm. and the police have that. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine telling your client, listen, what you need to do for recovery, you need to go down to the police and you need to ask for permission to watch your assault. And you need to watch it over yes, and over. Yes, yes, You need to see every detail of it. You yeah. need to relive the hits, the injuries, no! all that stuff. No. Can you imagine telling them, and by the way, maybe you need to go and look up every video you can find on assault on and assault watch those and just two. watch everybody getting assaulted all the time yeah no no that no 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 no. that is re-traumatizing that keeps people stuck in that injury and in that pain yep and yet on an affair betrayal perspective we see that happening over and over again all the time even sometimes literally even because there have been betrayed spouses that have accidentally come across a video of their partner with someone else and they will watch it repeatedly yeah 
they convince themselves, if I have more clarity regarding what happened, and I can see it, and I can hear it, or I can read all the detail of it, somehow that's going to help me. It doesn't help them any more no. than the example we just gave. No, it doesn't. And and I want people to understand, I get where they're coming from with that. Yeah. But I also know it isn't helpful. It doesn't end up helping. It makes it worse. Oftentimes, like you said, literal re-traumatization. They are traumatized again. That is something that we have a lot of mercy for. You know, Mm -hmm. we do extend a lot of grace because it is something that feels so compulsive for people. We've already discussed in previous podcasts about what the theories that we have about why that tends to come up and why it feels so important to people. But it is really important that you take care of yourself and that you don't do those kinds of things that you really do do everything in your power to refrain from re-traumatizing yourself. There are a lot of consequences to staying stuck, Mm -hmm. even physical consequences. You know, I've talked about in the past that during my first marriage, because of the infidelity and the chronic stress of that, I developed fibromyalgia. People can have heart problems. Mm -hmm. They can have weight gain, weight loss. Sure. Um, All this kinds of stuff can happen. I've talked to people that have gotten all kinds of physical ailments. So Mm -hmm. not just physical, emotional consequences, of course, as well. Mm -hmm. That sense of settled hopelessness Mm -hmm. or always feeling fearful or anxious, Mm -hmm. angry. Those things become characteristic of how a person feels emotionally and how it, they respond to others mm-hmm. can be a, a become a pattern for someone that's stuck in the trauma. Yeah. I've even drawn a little bit of a parallel to when someone's in a domestic abuse situation, there's a phenomenon that happens called learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. That's why when people on the outside look in and say, why doesn't she just leave? They don't understand that there's a process that happens where you start to feel that you have no options You start to feel like you cannot leave. It is called learned helplessness. It's a real thing. And I think to some degree, there's a few parallels between somebody who is stuck in an affair mindset where they are victims perpetually and they get comfortable there in a way. It's like, you know, the devil you know is more comfortable than the devil you don't know or Mm -hmm. whatever. And they end up feeling helpless, like they can't change anything or it's too scary to try to change anything. You know, I don't know. There's a lot of dynamics that go into it, but I think that does happen. So staying stuck can affect physical health, emotional health. It can also affect relational health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Staying stuck can hinder the marriage from experiencing change and renewal that most couples want to believe they can experience. Mm -hmm. It can begin affecting even family dynamics and even outside of family, sometimes social relationships, friends and so forth. All of a sudden it's harder for them to be around someone who is always negative yeah, hopeless. Definitely. And and again, let's make it very clear. We're not talking about those first reactions that mm-hmm. sometimes can take months or long years. Yeah. It can take a while. Yeah. And I don't know, we throw numbers out here, but I look anywhere from six months to two years as kind of being normative to mm-hmm. when you can expect to be coming out of that. But that's the key word. Someone who begins to come out of that right. trauma. Let's move on and talk about the real hope of recovering from trauma. And some of the things can help people move forward and through it to something better, something different, something good. The rest of this podcast will be devoted to giving you tools that can be helpful in your recovery from the trauma of betrayal. We'll do that in a couple ways. 
Sharon will be explaining some of the therapeutic approaches that are helpful in trauma recovery, and I will be providing some individual exercises that can be helpful to you as you move forward and as you move out of the trauma experience. One of the most common types of behavior therapy is cognitive behavior therapy. It has a lot of really great points to it. It's grounded in the idea that you are thinking incorrect thoughts and that you can learn how to correct those incorrect thoughts. For trauma sufferers, one thing that is really helpful in cognitive behavioral therapy is identifying and evaluating negative, incorrect, and irrational thoughts and replacing them with more accurate and less negative thoughts. And that can look like anything from journaling the negative ones and then writing down right next to it a more positive way of looking at it. They call this reframing. So looking at your thoughts, backing up from them, and looking at them in a more objective way and then choosing to replace that thought with something else that is more helpful, that is not destructive, that is more grounding to the present. And if you have a therapist that is practicing cognitive behavioral therapy, then you can talk to them about that, about trying to ground your thoughts, about learning to control them better. Personal Exercise 1 objectifying your thoughts. I want you to do this exercise when you have nothing else that requires your attention. So if you're driving, if you're having to take care of your children, if you're working heavy machinery, any of those things, pause this podcast and come back to it when you have time to be thoughtful and focused without distractions. This exercise, objectifying your thoughts, has three steps. At any point, if you need to stop and give a little bit of time before you move on, feel free to do that. Step one, I want you to think of a positive childhood event or memory. Grade school age or younger, what is something that you have a positive or fond memory of? You have that event in mind? All right, step two, I want you to close your eyes, sit back and do your best to re-experience that event or that moment. Now here's how I want you to do it. As you sit back and visualize it, I want you to bring all of your imaginary senses into play. Look around. What do you see around you? Look up, look down, look to the left, look to the right, in front of you, behind you. What's there? Who's there? What are the colors you see? Put every detail you can visually into the experience that you're remembering. And now add sound. What do you hear? What are the conversations? What is the ambiance? If you're inside, some of the indoor sounds that may be going on. If you're outside, what are all the things that you can remember or imagine were part of that experience in what you hear? And what about touch? Is there anything unique that you feel? Think about what you were wearing. What does that feel like on your body? What do your hands feel? Is there wind on your face? Are you barefooted? And if so, what does the ground feel like to you? And if smell or taste is a part of that experience, bring all the five senses into play as you think about this event. To the best of your ability, try to relive that experience in your mind. Got it? 
spend a little time there. And if you need to pause this podcast to do that, feel free to do so before you move on to the next step. Step three, think about the last meal you ate. What was the food? Did you like it or not? Did you eat it quickly? Did you eat it slowly? What was that experience like? You don't have to give a lot of thought to it, but I want you to fix that meal in your mind. Step four, realize that your thoughts are not you. Now, I've kind of done it in a simple, silly way, but I wanted you to realize that those things that are in your mind, that you observe and maybe even experience through thought and feeling, they are separate from who you are. And one example of that is even though you may have invested some time in trying to bring that past childhood memory into focus and into an experience, you know, even if it was an imagination, but it was in a real way that you began to think about it and you began to feel it, you were probably able to quickly move from that when I asked the next question. What was the last meal you ate? All of a sudden your focus shifted to something else. Your thoughts and the way they make you feel are of course a part of you. They come from inside of you, but they are not you. Begin to see your thoughts as something separate from you. You're able to stand back and observe them. You're able to react to them, but they are not you. In a sense, I'm asking you to objectify your thoughts. Create the distance between what you think and how those thoughts make you feel and who you actually are. I suspect that as you did these exercises, if you really tried to be attentive in the way that I asked you to be, you probably were giving very little thought in those moments to the affair. Your thoughts are separate from you, and you can give attention to one or the other, and you will become more effective in doing that if you can realize that separation between you and the thoughts that you have. I am sure if you guys have listened to this podcast before, you have heard me talk about EMDR, ad nauseum. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But it is the one that I practice, and it's the one that helped me in my own personal life with my own personal traumas well before I even became a counselor. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It is a therapy that was started by a woman named Francine Shapiro. She discovered that if she moved her eyes back and forth quickly, right, left, right, left, sort of like REM sleep, she would notice a decline in feelings of anxiety about things that had happened to her. She, at that point, did what most of us don't do, and she launched a huge study and investigation of what this might mean. Now, here we are, a couple decades later, and EMDR has progressed to where we understand a lot more of what's going on with it. What they have realized is Eye movement back and forth kind of gives a little electrical impulse to your brain, right hemisphere, left hemisphere, right hemisphere, left hemisphere, back and forth as you're moving your eyes back and forth. And they've now discovered over time that it isn't just eye movement that does this. It's anything that they call bilateral stimulation. So whenever you stimulate the right side of your body, then the left side of your body, then the right side, then the left side, your brain is doing the same thing that the eye movement does. So in my office, what I use for EMDR are these things called tappers. They're little plastic things. They're attached to a wire that I'm holding onto a little box that's battery-powered. And they buzz, almost like a cell phone vibration. They buzz right, left, right, left. And you hold them. 
as you sit in my office and bring up the traumatic or extremely disturbing thought or memory. What we believe is happening in the brain is that as you are stimulating it to light up right, left, right, left, you're sort of keeping the left side online. You're keeping it from kind of going quiet like I talked about earlier. As you're bringing up the upsetting incident, your brain is able to be more rational about it. It's able to feel that you are sitting in my office in the present, that the event is not happening again. It is a way to help your brain not only feel rooted and grounded in the present and in your body, rather than being teleported into the traumatic memory again, but it is also helping your brain be able to talk to itself about what happened and make sense of it in a way that it hasn't been able to do before. One of the other really important things that we address during EMDR is the negative cognition that you start believing in the moment the traumatic thing happened to you. For example, a lot of common ones are, I am not good enough. I am broken. I am a failure character type descriptions that your brain started to believe about you because of what happened to you. So we identify that and we bring up the target memory and we let the tappers run and your brain ends up doing the work for you. It ends up talking to you about what happened. It ends up correcting that negative cognition you started to believe. It ends up telling you the absolute truth, which is no, you are not in danger all the time. And so you start to understand that more. It's really, really neat to watch somebody go from feeling so disturbed and you just watch that level of disturbance slowly start to go down as their brains give them the keys they need to heal. Personal exercise number two, changing the channel. Now this builds on the first exercise with the intention of helping you see that your thoughts can be an intentional choice. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You cannot stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from making a nest in your hair. <laughs> You can't stop the thoughts that come into mind. There are triggers all around you, especially after you've experienced trauma, that are constantly going to be turning up thoughts, like the bird flying over your head. You do have the power to see that those thoughts are separate from who you are. Just like the bird in the sky is not you, those thoughts are not you. So when they come, you have the ability to change your attention. You can think of that thought as a story that shows up on the channel you're watching, and you can choose to turn to a different channel or a different show. Now I know at the beginning of the process this is easier said than done, but I do want you to realize your thoughts are separate from you, and when they come, you do have the ability to change the channel. The old story will keep showing up, and the birds will keep flying over your head, but you can begin making the choice to turn to something different. So I want to encourage you to do that in two ways. Turn the channel to a new attention by answering two questions. And if you want to journal these, that's great. If you want to open your smartphone and make notes of these things in the moment, whatever works for you. But change the channel 
by answering these two questions. Question one, what am I grateful for? In the moment, you may not feel like you even want to entertain that question, but you can be intentional to give thought to, okay, even in all this mess, what am I grateful for? Think about it. Write it down. And then move to the second question. What is the change I'm working on today? doesn't have to be a big change. It can be a small one. But if your goal is healing, what does that healing look like? It's something different than where you are now, isn't it? What is the next shift, the next choice, the next action you can take that is a change that moves you closer to that? What am I grateful for? What is the change I'm working on today? Share your response to either of those questions or both of them with someone else. Another therapy that really might hold some help for people in learning to control destructive thoughts would be group therapy. I would recommend going to a group where it is led by a therapist just because that would be more of a therapeutic group. There are many support groups that are just wonderful that are not led by therapists. They could be led by another person who is a trauma survivor. But in my opinion, when you're still in the thick of things and you're just on the road to recognizing trauma and trying to do something about it in your life, a therapeutic group might be very, very helpful. They can do things such as recognizing mourning and surviving. They can talk to you about reconnecting with other people, reconnecting with society, reconnecting with yourself. And there's a lot of education that can go on in these kinds of groups. And you're there with other people. So you get that feeling of camaraderie. You get that feeling of not being alone. It can be very helpful to talk about your own experience and your healing journey. You get a lot of validation and feelings of support from other people that are going through what you're going through as well. Personal exercise number three, turning cages into clouds. I'm a visual person. And so when I'm working on change, it helps me to create visual pictures that help me towards change. For example, if you've listened to other podcasts, you likely know that when I am experiencing anger or I am confronted with the anger from someone else, very often that anger will evoke an image of a bobber on the water. And that visualization helps me move in a different direction. If I'm in conflict... Very often I will see a question mark that rises up between me and the other person. I mean, I see it in my head. It's not a vision, but I imagine it. It helps me. And if I find myself shutting down in a relationship, I imagine two hands reaching out. And they remind me of my need to reach out, first of all, with love and then with openness. So visualization can help move you towards change. So I want you to imagine your negative, intrusive, traumatic thoughts being a cage that settles down over you in any particular moment. Because that's what it feels like, doesn't it? It feels like they trap you. It feels like they take control. It feels like you are just the victim to what they do and you don't have power. That's what it feels like. So I want you to see them as a cage. When those thoughts come, you can imagine the cage just settling down around you and you're standing there at the bars. That feeling of frustration and hopelessness. Is this ever going to go away? Am I ever going to get over this? Or is this my lot in life? 
And so from the inside of that cage with your hand on its bars, I want you to see those bars turning into the wisp of a cloud. The cage disappears and you are in a cloud. The cloud is real. The thoughts are real. The pain is real. The trauma is real. It's not like you're pretending those things don't exist. You're acknowledging it's there, but it's not a cage that traps me. It's a cloud that I can walk through to the other side. And yes, it's going to come again. And when you see it coming, you see that cage coming down, it turns into a cloud and you stand there and say, okay, I don't have to pretend you're not here. I don't have to try to avoid you. My way to healing is to acknowledge you, but walk through you knowing that there's another side to this. You can say to that cloud, You are real, but you will not control me. I will pass through this moment and move on. Talking about studies from the book The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, he talks about some studies that they've looked into where after 10 weeks of yoga practice, The PTSD symptoms of patients who hadn't responded to any medications or to any other treatment were drastically reduced. They had a lot of improvement over just 10 weeks of practicing yoga. There have been some studies that have shown that there's a strong connection between the autonomic nervous system and heart rate variability. And the autonomic nervous system is the part of the system that automatically responds to stressors from the environment. When you are having problems with your body being in hyperarousal states because of traumatic events, obviously your autonomic nervous system is out of whack. When someone is practicing yoga, they are able to really control that heart rate variability so it doesn't become rapid and shallow. It doesn't become out of sync with your breath. Your heart rate goes into this nice synchronicity with the rest of your body sensations. And that can be so key in a person learning how to calm down those arousal states that happen when you've suffered a trauma. The natural thing that happens from that is when you are practicing this practice that is keeping you, even when you're not in a yoga class, you are more able to be intentional about calming yourself down. Well, it naturally follows that your controlling and destructive thoughts start to get in line more. You're able to look at those thoughts and say, hey, wait a minute, I can choose to respond to this in a more calm and controlled way. I am not going to overreact to relatively minor situations because I am actually living in a lot more controlled and calm environment inside my own mind. Finally, I want to talk about mindfulness. This is another one that, yes, a therapist can help you with, but also you can start practicing some mindfulness exercises at home. Mindfulness in a nutshell, and this is a real overgeneralization, but it really is the practice of learning to be aware of your thoughts and learning to be aware of your body and where you are in space. Those are two of the key foundational issues with trauma and why our brain has a problem with it. We have thoughts we are unable to really access, and we lose track of where we are in the present moment. And so mindfulness addresses both of those things in a pretty simple way. When you first talk about mindfulness, it seems like, really? That seems like nothing. (laughs) But over time, 
it actually becomes very powerful in us controlling and being able to kind of take a step back in our own minds and look at what we're thinking. One book that I really like that talks about basic mindfulness practices is called Just One Thing by Rick Hansen. It's a really tiny little book, and it takes you through some exercises that are very basic, such as sit quietly and just close your eyes and notice what it feels like to take a breath in and fill your lungs with air and notice what it feels like to exhale it. Notice what it feels like to sit on a chair. What does your butt feel like on the chair? What does your back feel like against the back of the chair? What do your feet feel like on the floor? Just things like that that are seem so obvious. However, we spend so much of our times caught up in our own brains running around just thinking, thinking, thinking. We don't even know where we are in space. We can drive 20 minutes home from work and not even remember being in the car because we're so in our heads. So learning how to be mindful can be so important and practicing it when you're not being triggered, practicing it when you're not in a heightened state of arousal, practicing it when you're just sitting there calmly gets you very used to it and gets your brain familiar with the techniques. And then what happens is that over time, even when you are in a heightened state or you are heading toward the trigger reactions, you can be more in control of what happens in your brain as you're thinking it. It takes time. It takes practice. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a way of life, essentially, to become more mindful. One of the things about becoming mindful is noticing how your feelings and your thoughts just shift all the time. They're constantly going. There's constantly this kind of narration and voice and different things happening all the time. To practice mindfulness means you start to become aware of those commotions. You start to become aware of all the different things flying around in your head. And therefore, you are aware of being able to shift that to a certain degree. And again, over practice, over time, you get better and better at it until it becomes a way of life, until you are continually taking that moment to be able to mentally step back from a situation instead of getting drug around by it. As you're learning how to think of things and control things, your brain emits different neurotransmitters. It lets different chemicals course through your brain and your body. And so you have different reactions based on that. When you no longer have that immediate adrenaline and cortisol rush that happens from trauma getting pulled up, when you are more in control of those calming situations and being able to be aware of what's going on, your brain will not jump into those kinds of things. It will release different chemicals. So I hope some of this has been helpful. I hope there are kind of lights at the end of the tunnel for you, that there are ways you can look at thinking, okay, I'm not in a situation that can't be worked on. There are ways that I can work toward healing from trauma and starting to learn to take control of myself and my life and my heart and my world again. To those of you who have suffered the trauma of betrayal, we hope this podcast is encouraging and helpful to you. Not just to listen to, but to take another step forward. Because there is hope on the other side of this. There is healing on the other side of this. Others who have been right where you are now can give testimony to the changes they've experienced. Join them and let that be your story too.
The Recovery Room Podcast is a resource provided by AffairHealing.com. For more information about the podcast and resources for a fair recovery, including archives of past programs and the schedule for upcoming ones, please go to AffairHealing.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Tim Tedder. See you next time. Mm-hmm.